think of when I say the word luxury? Do you imagine fast cars, expensive watches, exotic vacations? Or do you think of Instagram influencers with the perfect aesthetic, impeccable fashion, and the latest trendy brands? Or perhaps your idea of luxury is more simple. Simply having the time to curl up on the couch with a favorite book or movie, a cup of tea, and no obligations on your time. Well, today on Forward, we're going to be unpacking the idea of what luxury is, how we can study it, and why studying it even matters. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and this episode, I bring you a conversation with not one, but two of our researchers in Brock's Faculty of Humanities. Dr. Jessica Clark is an associate professor with the Department of History, where she teaches courses on the history of Britain and its empire. Her research looks at ways that consumption, labor, and gender shaped people's lived experiences in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Her 2020 book, The Business of Beauty, looks at how London-based entrepreneurs helped create a commercial beauty culture. She's also co-editor of The Recipes Project, a scholarly blog that shares international research on food, magic, medicine, and beauty, and more. And she's currently working on a research project that explores ideas of identity and belonging in Britain through the analysis of scent. And we will definitely be asking her about that. Dr. Nigel Lezema is an associate professor with the French program in the Department of Modern Languages, Literatures, and Culture. His research into mid-19th century French literature led him to thinking about how marginalized Parisians used fashion and luxury in art, poetry, and lifestyle. He also considers the idea of luxury in other cultures and subcultures such as disco and hip-hop. And the two of them are here together today because they have recently collaborated on publishing an edited volume titled Canadian Critical Luxury Studies, Decentering Luxury. And as always, we will have links to all of these wonderful publications in our show notes. So welcome, Nigel and Jess. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming. I know we've been trying to organize this for a while, um, and you have uh, both been very busy with your research. So and I and we're cagey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am curious to hear how you each came to the idea of studying luxury, and then how you came to collaborate on it as well. Sure. So whoever wants to go first. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can start, absolutely. When I started working on luxury, I was working as a literary scholar, so I was doing my PhD on Baudelaire and Eugène Sue, so I was looking at high and low literature in the 19th century, and I was looking at specific figures, marginalized figures, so I was looking at the dandy, the prostitute, and uh, the figure of the poor person, in French, le pauvre, I could say it just like that, but in English it's a little more convoluted. And so I was looking at the ways that clothing was used or fashion was used to represent the changing field of literature because at, this, at the same time that the field of fashion is emerging in the 19th century in France, the field of literature is also becoming more professionalized. And so instead of being an artist, you're now a worker, a laborer, creating and selling your poetry, your art, whatever it is, on the market. And so what you have in that are questions of value and what is valued. Um, and as something now is sold on a market and not created for the sake of aesthetics, it changes that that value inherently. And so what we have there is a question of luxury. What is luxury in terms of, and what is the value of art, of, of poetry, when it's being sold on a market? And so from that to fashion, it was kind of a, a quick step, almost I like rolled into it thereafter. 
And my work on the history of the beauty industry in 19th and early 20th century Britain seems to be about what at the time was a luxury industry in the sense that uh, beauty services and goods in that period were really only available to elite white customers for the most part um, in the form of hairdressing and barbering and complexion services. Of course, people could buy goods um, across classes, including things like soap and other kind of small toiletry items. But for the most part, the services were really tailored to elite classes, particularly in London in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So even though I was studying a luxury industry, what I was really interested in were the purveyors of these services who were very often not elite people, um, and particularly in the case of hairdressing, where we have a number of working class hairdressers, especially um, new immigrants to London um, from places like Eastern Europe and Germany, um, and also working class women who were trying to um, enter the beauty business as a way of sort of bolstering their own economic standing and also social standing as well. So um, the upshot is that I was interested in questions of who made luxury available to elite consumers. So it was a more complicated question than just studying the goods, the luxury goods and services themselves, but asking about these hidden figures um, and often marginalized figures who made this industry possible for these elite consumers. I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I have my list, but I still have so many questions. Um, so um, how did you come to work together on this? We started at Brock at around the same time. So I was I was here in 2013. Jess came in 2014. And our dean introduced us. And, and so we met, like it was in August, I think, we met for a drink. And just to talk about our research and, and talk about, like, would we collaborate? Could we collaborate? And and we just like hit it off, and we and our there were like synergies in our in our research. We were working both in the nineteenth century, but we were both looking at like luxury from a luxury fashion, you know, with a critical eye, mm -hmm. and and looking at the the figures that are often hidden in in that discourse or in those in those representations, and uh, and I think we just said, what about luxury? Mm -hmm. as the as the theme and then we started with a conference and we worked on that yeah it was yes. really organic and I think at that first meeting because we're the types that we are I think we decided to do a conference in that first meeting yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is hilarious in retrospect yeah I just met you and then we're like we should put on a conference together <laughs> as we decided that like there was this like emergence of like all of this research and material that was coming out in critical luxury um i think their the book critical luxury studies came out in 2016 mm -hmm. there was an exhibition at the victorian albert museum entitled what is luxury we happened to like meet on the street in london <laughs> one, one day uh, like the following summer I'm like what are you doing here How are you? let's go to the museum uh, you know so it was just the, all of these like synergies just mm -hmm happened so it, it was that 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 beautiful like kind of being in the right place at the right time and just seizing on that totally to move forward that's such a wonderful story um i always love hearing about how scholars come to work together and collaborate and um and never and leave connect. each other's side again <laughs> ever ever <laughs> so you've worked on a really ambitious uh book 
um, or I describe just, I mean, I describe any scholarly book as ambitious because the amount of work that goes in, into, into these kinds of things um, is, is pretty, it's pretty intense. Um, and you've got it on the table in front of us. And I will put a link in the notes for our listeners so they can see it's quite a beautiful book, very sleek looking. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, Canadian Critical Luxury Studies. So how did the book come about? Did it come out of the conference or? Yeah, so um, we hosted a conference in 2017 um, at Toronto Metropolitan University with um, members of the School of Fashion and specifically Alison Matthews David and Robert Ott, um, who were incredibly supportive of the entire venture. Um, and it, and it, it was just such an exciting conference. Um, we had many of these kind of leading scholars in critical luxury studies come from overseas um, and join us in Toronto. And we also um, had a lot of Canadian presenters who, um, in focusing oftentimes on Canadian um, content, revealed that there were really interesting and um, distinct definitions and conceptualizations of luxury that were happening uh, based in Canada versus other global locations. Mm -hmm. And so one of the main questions that came out of the conference was, how are we thinking about luxury in the Canadian context? How does it differ from other geographies of luxury? And what what are the distinct Canadian contributions that we can make to critical luxury studies? Mm -hmm. So what is luxury? And what is Canadian <laughs> luxury? How does Canadian luxury compare? Um, so it's kind of like a yeah. double-barreled question, which I know is a terrible yeah. kind of question to ask. <laughs> um, because but it feels like they're so entwined that we kind of have to maybe ask. I'm going to ask them as, yeah. as as one, and then you can pick them apart. <laughs> totally. Like for one thing, I think the introduction you gave was like spot on because luxury is so many things to so many in so many other in so many contexts. It depends on who's speaking about it. Like a you know a, a vacation you know, in a glorious resort where you're weighted on hand and foot uh, might seem luxurious to you and I, but I imagine that someone who lives like that, that is just ordinary, you know? So, like, luxury in and of itself, lux there is no real categorical definition of luxury. I, th I think we would say, like, you know, when, when we look at, like, the, the different case studies in the book, we challenge this idea that luxury would be defined as like by its rarity, by its exclusivity, by its refinement, and by its expense, which I think is a real sort of like marketing way and a real standard way that, that people think about luxury now. But what we found in the different case studies of the book, when we put them all together and we thought about it, we felt that in the Canadian context, what we see is that luxury, like almost to give the spoiler, the conclusion of the book like luxury is in community okay. and but what that means is that all of these different instances of, of luxurious making or the circulation of commodities they all had at their root the idea of improving like one's own life one's own experience in life so ontologically but also of creating links between people whether it's between a maker and a consumer between makers between an individual and technology even, creating these links that enrich human existence. And so for us, we found that through these studies, luxury is in the Canadian context is community. Interesting. So, so it's not focusing on the things, which is 
or for me anyway, that's what springs to mind when you think of luxury is like the fancy cars. And in doing so, we were trying to um, continue some of the work that's been done that pushes back against historical sites and definitions of luxury that really situated um, in the West, um, in particularly in Europe and America, and especially in particular European nations like France and Italy, um, as these you know key and exclusive sites of luxury making and luxury experience. Um, and so there's a lot of great work that we're contributing to that is thinking about the historical roots of those ideas, um, the ways they're rooted in colonialism and other um, historical developments of power over time. And so by trying to think about the ways that luxury manifests in distinct regions, we're also kind of pushing back at very narrow definitions of luxury that are really just about very particular, often consumer goods that are produced in very particular locations um, at the expense of all sorts of other definitions of and experiences of luxury around the world. Another spoiler. Yes. <laughs> we call that hegemonic luxury in the book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hegemonic. That is a big term. Um, can we can can you break that down a little bit for us? Of yeah. What, absolutely. Of what, what do we mean by hegemonic? Yeah. So as Jess was saying, as we looked at luxury in these various in, as we compared it to these traditionally dominant markets and, and geographies, we realized that those those myths they still have resonance now, right? Made in France, made in Italy, it still means something, mm. even if behind that reality, it means very little. But that, so, so that myth that we still sort of live under, that we, you know, with Paris Fashion Week, and um, we wanted to sort of look behind that, you know, pull back the curtains and see what, what does that really mean? So when we were discussing like the issues of power, we're looking at where are the raw commodities coming from uh, when they go to be re so refined, for example, so-called refined in these uh, European centers, whether it's Paris, London, um, or Milan. And so when we use the term hegemonic luxury, what we're saying is that these are systems, circuits that keep in place a certain power dynamic where there are winners and losers and it's treated as almost natural. So this might tie in then with some of the ideas we hear around sweatshops, around fast fashion, and some Absolutely. of those issues about where, where our clothes are coming from and how fast we're consuming them versus the conditions that they're made under. Yeah, That is part of the questions yeah. that are asked okay. you know, in this kind of way. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, um, looking at luxury with that historical perspective as well, how has luxury changed, or has it changed? Has it always been about this idea of community and kind of who you're connected with, or, or is that something new? Well, I think one of the um, many important ideas and elements that are um, emphasized in the book is the ways that um, there are new ideas um, circulating about luxury, but they're also very um, long-standing conceptions of luxury, but they haven't been defined that way because they were outside of the European centers. So for example, um, one of the contributor or contributors, um, Riley Kucherin, who is a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, um, has 
a chapter, which is a, actually a discussion between the three of us, where he talks about the ways that um, indigenous making and indigenous community is in its very nature luxurious in that it involves time, care, community connection, mm -hmm. and a deep valuation of the goods, but also the relationships that come mm -hmm. out of the creation of these items and, and connections. And so in that way, he argues that this is a very long-standing practice, but the ways that luxury had been defined, and particularly in these centers of power, that luxuriousness was denied for, mm -hmm. to uphold certain power relations. Okay, so so as I'm listening to what you're saying about this, this is obviously challenging my own ideas of what luxury is. So, so I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around this a little bit. So where does consumerism come into luxury? How does that fit in? One of the ways that I thought about that, because I have a specific chapter in the book where I look at um, a campaign in the 1920s in, uh, in Canada from the Timothy Eaton's company, so from Eaton's. Mm -hmm. And it's the Made in Canada campaign. It come. It starts in this sort of Made in Canada movement. Starts probably around like 1911 or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, but it really picks up speed. And it, it. And there's at the same time in the 20s, there's we can call it a discourse. So it's like this message that's being cast out so that people can feel Canadian, uh, and they're doing a service to Canada by consuming. At the same time that this is happening happening in consumption, it's also happening in the field of, of cultural practices. Um, so poetry, for example, poetry and painting and in art. Um, they're also looking at what is what does it mean to be made in Canada and they're trying to create a canon of high-valued Canadian art uh, in the field of art. And so so I looked at these two sort of like very opposite, uh, perspectives, because in the on the side of cultural production, anything that's a commodity, anything that's for sale, which is the same story that that we had in the 19th century uh, that I talked about with Baudelaire and Eugène Sue, it's the same thing. They're saying, well, if it's for sale, it can't be that valuable. Mm. But what I felt was when I went through the catalogs, the Eden's catalogs, and everybody had them up until maybe the 80s, maybe 90s. I don't remember when uh, when the catalog business ended. But I went through these catalogs from the from the early well from the end of the 19th up until like the 40s. And so I was looking at this Made in Canada, which became a really big thing in the 20s, as I was saying. And what I found was that there was a potential for in consumption to create a luxurious experience because Eaton's was also a store that was not for the elite. It was Eaton's for the masses, Simpsons for the classes. That's something okay. I have to say. <laughs> um, and so Eaton's customers were, uh, were rural, were working class, working and, and lower middle class consumers. But through this Made in Canada campaign, what I was able to to assume to a certain extent, because it's, I'm basing this on sort of the, the marketing uh, material from the company, is that there is the potential to create a surplus value in the experience of buying ordinary commodities. And so in that sense, luxury, it, what I felt I was able to do was expand the idea of luxury, you know, from those, I, those questions of like rarity, exclusivity, mm -hmm. exclusivity, expense, and refinement, to an experience that an individual consumer could have by purchasing ordinary commodities, whether it's like um, uh, whites, so undergarments, or couches, but like 
because they were made in Canada, they had, they were supporting Canadian workers, they were supporting the economy, they could have this other sense of, of, of civic, of a civic-minded activity. And for me, that experience is, is the luxury that's, that's in play. Okay. Yeah, so that, that um, not the good, and not even just that simple transaction, but how that transaction is, is framed and it's experienced. It's framed and experienced, I think, is okay. the key part of that. Okay. And we also have, um, in terms of the other contributions, because it is an edited volume um, featuring a number of contributors, we have um, two contributors, two chapters, excuse me, by Rebecca Halliday and Catherine Franklin and Julia Pollock O'Neill, um, who write about space and the creation of space as a luxurious um, or a site for um, luxury and luxurious possibilities. Um, so it's not just about goods, but can it, also, it can also be about constructions of the lived environment yeah. and the ways people move through and navigate and negotiate space. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, of course, is like your single family, your large, a large single family home on a lot <laughs> with a large yard um, being perceived as as a luxurious experience. Yeah. It could, it could be like I think in this like in, for these two, this section of the book because we had divided into three sections and so this section was um, was entitled placemaking or space and place, mm -hmm. and so what these chapters do is they they engage with the idea of luxury placemaking because there had been some work in critical luxury studies prior to our prior to our book so in the in the twenty sixteen volume and in um, another edited volume by Mario Paris in 2017 maybe that came out. And so these two chapters engage with that kind of thinking of can luxury or does luxury really create a luxurious place okay. so that it becomes like a, a place that people want to inhabit or go to or pass through? Or is it a place of gentrification that pushes out mm -hmm. communities and hides stories that are, and histories that, uh, that make up that space. These chapters were really quite good at showing the limits mm. of hegemonic luxury, of luxury in the European model of creating monument monuments or public art in spaces that are supposed to tell a story. But in fact, in Julia Pollock O'Neill's chapter, she really highlights how there are actual histories, indigenous histories, in, in these spaces in Vancouver that are being overwritten by mm. the capital that's at play in making public monuments. And oftentimes even the artist's own intentions are kind of hidden away mm. in the mm. actual finished monument in that space. Mm -hmm. And uh, Catherine Franklin and, and um, Rebecca Halliday, in their chapter, they looked at um, Toronto Fashion Week. And so we also know like, you know, Paris Fashion Week, London Fashion Week, so there's this model of, um, of high fashion that that works very well in Paris. Um, and what their chapter highlights is that that type of model is problematic in Toronto. For Toronto Fashion Week, it was an on-again, off-again venture. Um, but what uh, happens is that there are tensions at play, sort of like regional identities, Toronto is the center, um, Toronto as just one center in among many in 
in the space of Canada, and so that it couldn't adequately represent a Canadian fashion movement in the same way that Paris fashion is French fashion, mm. that Milan Fashion Week is Italian. Okay, okay, yeah. So, as we're talking about luxury, and um, I know you were recently quoted in The Guardian. Yes, about, about fashion exhibitions. Ab- about fashion exhibitions. Do you want to tell us a, a, a little bit about what you had to say about fashion exhibitions? <laughs> if you remember. Yeah, I'm sure. kind of springing this um, on you. Yeah, I'm always thinking about fashion <laughs> exhibitions. Um, what, like, that interview was um, the journalist, I forget his name now, um, but what he was talking about was like what's happened now is that there's all of a sudden like every museum has a fashion exhibition and fashion exhibitions are like sort of the easiest draw for a public. Um, you know, everybody wants to go see a fashion exhibition and so they've become quite popular and uh, to the point where brands themselves are also hosting their own exhibitions which becomes something quite different. Right In a museum there's a certain expectation of, of curatorial distance um, there's a certain expectation of education that comes with that. Whereas when a brand, when Louis Vuitton puts on a show of Louis Vuitton bags, what are you trying to tell us, you know? And so there's this tension that like, that fashion exhibitions have become just another mode, another mode for consumption, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up in the gift shop and you buy something from it. Uh, but, you know, as I think you might understand that for me, what's important is always experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the fashion, in, in a fashion exhibition, um, even even the most sort of blatant brand-based um, show that is just to glorify a brand to make um, a commodity seem like art, but even in those experiences, the individual visitor has the occasion to imagine themselves: Where would I wear that? How would I how would I use this? Um, you know, and to, to fantasize a little bit. And that experience in and of itself is luxurious. It, it becomes an intellectual process of consuming a good where money doesn't exchange hands, but we enrich our fantasy lives. And I think that alone is worth it for these shows. I go to them, you know, for like academic reasons, but I always... It's research. Yeah, right? That's what I say in my apps for funding. But, you know, you also imagine what it's like to wear or where you would wear or you know, any given garment on display. And I suppose there, there's there's an element of kind of seeing how the other half live. Well, it's not even the other half, but the other percentage. Um, and where where these are maybe not as out of reach as they might be for the average person attending, attending a show. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes I don't think okay. that, like, you know, like you and I, we don't have, you know, we're not going to run out to Louis Vuitton and buy a bag after we go to a Louis Vuitton mm-hmm. show. Um, but, and so, yeah, like, there, you know, that voyeuristic aspect of it, I don't know, and pr- I'm sure there is, like, seeing, you know, how the other, you know, how this other, other 1%, yeah. <laughs> other half. <laughs> yeah, this other, I realized as I said that yeah. the expression just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this other fraction of 1% lives. For sure, there's that too, but I mean, I don't know, like, I've never really, like, sort of, like, oh, look, that, you know, that was J-Lo's, although J-Lo's dress is amazing, you know, from the from the Grammys, and that is something that's worth seeing, but um, but it's not because it's 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 not necessarily because it's the, this rarefied world okay. that I think that value where that value lies. I think it lies really in 
our ability to imagine using, living with those things. Which is a little bit like how I use Instagram. And I look at these things and I'm like, oh, I would never wear that. Oh, I would totally wear that. Or, mm. you know, I would change that color. No intention of ever mm-hmm. buying yeah. the product. Exactly. It's yeah. so different than saying, do you have that in my size? You know? So, yeah. totally. But I do kind of want to get at this at this idea of 1% because we're talking about luxury and, you know, it's we all have different ways, um, you know, for some of us, Ikea is, is, is luxury. Um, but how, like, how does studying something like this in our current times where we're, as particularly in a North American context where we, um, well, I think it's not even just North American, but where we're looking at things like high inflation, we're looking at a lot of social crisis, a lot of questions around how we're spending or not spending money, who's got money, who doesn't have money. Um, and, and you know, we're hearing reports about how that the people who have money are getting to be that smaller and smaller fraction. So kind of, so I'm, I'm just curious on your thoughts about kind of how studying luxury kind of fits in with where our society is today. That's a question that we have thought about a lot, and we've had a lot of people asking, um, understandably. And in the the conclusion of the book, we actually, um, you know, kind of grapple with that, asking why would we be talking about luxury um, in you know the current climate? And I think um, again, it comes back to how we define luxury. We're not interested in thinking about luxury in that rarefied, exclusive way, but in fact, expanding definitions of it so that our understandings of luxury and its creation and its conceptualization tie into exactly the developments that you're talking about. If we look to um, those people who are making luxury, those people who are facilitating luxury, those who are living adjacent to luxury or being displaced by luxury, um, then we are getting at the questions of, you know, global inequities, racism, and you know, social justice movements, um, because we're really trying to destabilize what luxury is and who has access to it, and um, and then redefine it so it has a broader um, a broader definition that can and does account for broader experiences that don't depend on if you're in that you know, 1% or not. Um, so really it comes back to a, an attempt to destabilize that and um, encourage all of us to rethink how we define luxury so that it is an inclusive practice, uh, inclusive experiences, um, and that we also are kind of laying bare and trying to expose the ways that at the heart of contemporary, our current understandings of luxury are these major questions and major inequities and major problems that this myth of luxury um, does a lot of work to try to obscure and hide. Mm. Um, so sometimes when people hear we study luxury, you know, understandably, the radar, you know, the, yes. the kind of radar goes up and they're like, why would you be interested in that? Um, but again, it, we're interested in the hidden sides, the hidden elements of luxury and trying to really invert how we think about it so that all of the elements that you talked about that are happening right now and are very real for most of us right now, most people right now, um, come to the fore. So are there some of those hidden stories, hidden people, um, either from history or from, from more, more recent examples that 
you want to highlight or that particularly maybe resonated with you as part of your research? Well, I think one section in the book um, that does a good job of showing a potential future futurities, you know, future avenues for luxury and luxury connection in a redefined way is through um, technology. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Varela Montaigne, she she was a scholar working out of Concordia, um, and she agreed to collaborate on our book. We had met at a Canadian Fashion Studies symposium, and unfortunately, sadly, she died um, in maybe 2018. So, but we really wanted to, to have her, you know, participate in the book. And so we looked at her thesis, which she had just um, recently completed and submitted, and, um, and we used um, a chapter of her case studies which examined ways that technology is brought into fashion to, again, heighten the experience, the, the ontological experience, the, the, the lived experience of the person who wears these things. So looking at technology, not in the ways that, you know, we do, that I do, timing myself in my runs of, <laughs> you know, pomodoros or whatever <laughs> other ways that we use technology and we become these, like, cyborg beings. But, like... Um, the ways that luxury, that technology can induce moments of play mm. um, in in the experience. So garments that that require, for example, there's um one of the case studies that uh, that talks about these three garments. I think they're called like itchy, scratchy, it's something that they had uh, funny names like that. But it's garments that are like a bit misshapen. So on the body, so there's a hump on the back that to make to make something happen, you have to like slam yourself up against a wall or have someone push push you from behind. Um, but like the point of it, you know, which because it could seem quite pointless, is to create these moments of levity, these moments of play mm. in life. And and so I think that um, in this chapter in, in Valérie's uh, contribution to the to the book, we see the potential. Uh, for technology in ways that are not just an Apple Watch, you know, that can sort of increase the the, the value in our own lives, in our own experienced mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming back to that idea of, of experience. Um, so something I'm curious about that might, um, that you may or may not be able to, to answer, but again, I don't follow fashion specifically, but I am on Instagram, so I do see things. Um, and then um, there there has been uh, a meme going around Instagram of a fashion show where they had dresses on in strange and unusual ways, and the dress was kind of like sideways or something like that, uh, right? Victor and Rolf. Okay, yeah. So so I look at these kinds of things, and, 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 and I'm curious, like, what is the... when kind of what is the connection or what is the influence between like these really conceptual um, displays and then what we wind up seeing, buying, experiencing in our everyday lives? Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's a great question. I mean, because there's, I think, two things at play in shows like that, right? In these very conceptual shows, right? I mean, I think there's a real... um, material uh, purpose to shows like that in that you see these conceptual shows of unwearable things for you and I, except on my first day of teaching. 
<laughs> we'll always do something glorious. But other than that, other than that, wearing a sideways dress isn't always going to work. Um, but I don't think you'd fit through a lot of doors. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in, in that material sense, like I mean, it's also like to stimulate, uh, you know, um, talk around the brand, and then that trickles down into buying the fragrance or something. Okay. You know what I mean? So it it, it stimulates uh, consumption. Um, so it's a marketing device. But fashion is also a place to dream, and it's also mm. a, place, a place to play. So that show was really, it was like where the dress is like two feet above the, the woman wearing it, <laughs> or like across her transversely. It was, a, it was so fun, that show. It's an example of like where fashion allows us to play and allows us to dream and imagine and sort of create fantasy worlds with our fashion. And we may not, you know, we may not wear our dresses sideways, but I think we can all be inspired by that and play and dream and expand our own identities through something that we wouldn't normally wear, like what you, a color or every color or like whatever it is you do, you know? Like, um, so, and, and that's, those shows allow us to dream. And that play can happen outside of these dominant global fashion systems. Mm -hmm. We might see it happening in the context of a, you know, a couture show in one of these fashion capitals. Um, but for better and for worse, because of technology and things like Instagram, you know, it can still be a source of inspiration that allows us to play, as Nigel mentioned, on a slightly, what might be considered a slightly lesser scale, but just experimenting mm -hmm. in our own self-presentation and having a little bit of fun. Yeah, I, um, I have no idea what the Instagram algorithms think I'm interested in because I get some really <laughs> interesting stuff. But kind of to pair that is this is the trend that Instagram has also been showing me of people who take thrift store finds and re whether it's furniture or whether it's clothing and they reimagine and they recreate and they play with it mm -hmm. um, as well. So it's kind of the same thing, mm. just a different absolutely. Diff Different budget. <laughs> yes. And arguably, that type of making, you know, I think there are many of us who really value that type of originality and creativity in exciting ways um, because, you know, the process is just as important as the final product. And so the creativity that people instill into that kind of work is just so dynamic mm -hmm. and so exciting. And, you know, in, in my my sense and certainly in some of the arguments we're making in the book is more important than the final a final commodity or Absolutely. good mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. yeah coming back to that experience and luxury as the experience and um, just having the time and the creativity um, for you know to do that kind of thing um, as well mm -hmm. absolutely as well so Jess, I want to ask you because your your research is um, going in a really interesting direction with scent and um, I've heard you um, speak about this um, before. Um, I think it was in the pre-pandemic days, maybe? I don't know. We've been working on it for a while. Anyway, yes. <laughs> um, I have a hard, tr hard time keeping track of everybody's projects. But um, I'm really curious about um, scent and if that's come out of luxury, um, out of your work on, on, on luxury, but also just how do you study scent in the 19th and 20th century? And do we really want to know what things smelled like? <laughs> And so those are all very good questions. Um, yeah, so my, my new project is uh, a book on the history of British modernity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, through, you know, through thinking about smell and scent. And I did come to the project um, via our work and my first book when 
um, I did a lot of work on perfumers um, mm. in the 19th and 20th centuries and, you know, thinking about the development of a British perfumery industry and what went into that. And a lot of the um, marketing and positioning of British perfumery in that period was deeply nationalistic mm. and or deeply nationalist. And it um, really focused on conveying what were these, you know, quote unquote, essential British qualities through scents like lavender and um, they also state claims to eau de cologne which of course is you know <laughs> continental <Ask> the <laughs> or the french you know multiple many people um and so it got me thinking about the ways that certain smells are associated um with particular ideas about belonging and um because the types of Britishness or more accurately Englishness that they were invoking were deeply pastoral um, you know, middle class, white, which really didn't reflect the realities of most Britain's experiences in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as, um, uh, you know, it was a multicultural and multiracial society. Many people were living and working in urban poverty. So it got me thinking about those disjunctures. And so I decided to um, think about some of the themes that historians have written about, about this period, but through um, smell and scent as the kind of gateway to these questions. Um, so I'm thinking about life in the, in the uh, you know, 19th century cities. I'm thinking about arguments about Englishness, who quote unquote smelled English and who did not. The ways that smell is used to marginalize particular groups and especially you know, foreign nationals and immigrant mm. groups and racialized groups. Um, and so, and the answer to your final part of that question is, it's challenging. It's very challenging because when people do comment on smell, it tends to be very um, kind of formulaic. The range of expression for smells I've discovered is actually quite narrow. Um, but so it, it's forced me to think about the ways that certain things are categorized as bad smells and good smells in a really sort of blanket way, um, but wrestle with the type of work that's doing, mm. um, especially in characterizations of, again, the urban poor and racialized groups. And so, yeah, so like the power of ideas about smell and especially the argument that there are certain sort of like, quote unquote, natural or essentialized smells among certain people and certain groups. Um, and, and um, and yeah, it's actually quite powerful. You know, we might not, they might not have historically had a lot of vocabulary to describe the different smells that were at play, but the symbolic work that that language did mm. um, was was really effective and really powerful and worked to, you know, marginalize certain groups and really prop up others. But it's interesting because really I'm writing about smell, but I'm very much still based in texts. So, yeah. so there's a tension there all the yeah. time, which is interesting and challenging. <laughs> well, and just thinking about how words and language around smell tends to take on negative connotations. Um, I'm just thinking of examples, you know, that I've run into of, of you know, of reading like 19th century novels where they use the word odor or smell or stink or something like that, where we would instinctively read it as like a negative thing but it's not necessarily negative so that must add it add an extra an extra uh, challenge to kind of yeah. figuring out 
what they're what they're talking about. Yeah, and in so much of the work that I think both of us do on marginalized historical actors, exactly as you said, you're often thinking about absences as much as what's in historical documents and texts. So it's certainly the case in the history of smell, particularly in that moment when there's lots of ideas about um, hygiene and sanitation. And there's been a lot of work done on deodorization in that mm. period. And so if a smell is quote unquote neutral or described as neutral or not described at all, that's also doing a lot of work. Mm. Um, that's really situating whoever does not smell in a very particular frame. Um, and so that's important to, to think about who is deemed quote unquote smelly in that period um, and who, who is not commented on at all. Mm. So is this book going to come with scratch and sniff stickers? <laughs> That's a uh, great don't, idea. I don't know if we would want those well, scratch maybe, and maybe sniffs. Maybe some of the nicer smells. <laughs> I want to smell 19th century sewage myself. <laughs> it would be an experience, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't mind some of the lavender, you know, the, the, the quintessential, you know, English lavender, lavender water, lavender soap, those uh, brands and images that are still with us today. Um, I think Yardley, um, I think, is one of the one of the older ones. You know, you still see it. You, you can you have to look for it, but you can still find find those those things. Yes, even though most English perfumers got the majority of their raw lavender from France. Which but. kind of makes sense given the English climate. I'm just... <laughs> There's very good English lavender production, but um, at least historically, yeah. most of it did not go into their perfumery. So there's a little bit of, you know, false advertising going on. Yeah. But again, time back to this idea of myth and the nationalistic, uh, nationalistic myth. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And Nigel, you've been looking at commodities in Paris? Commodity flows. Commodity flows. Okay. Um, What do we mean by commodity flows? Um, So again, like I'm back in my 19th century um, France and I've been looking at for the past little while, I've been looking at like this, the myth of Paris capital of fashion. Paris capitale de la mode. And in the, so in the newspapers in the 19th century, it's really quite um, uh, an elaborate um, story that's being told, and Paris, th- or through Paris fashion, French domination of Europe um, and of uh, colonial spaces is is represented in these in these newspaper articles. I've just started this research, and so what I'm thinking about now is like, well, okay, let's say we'll give it to you. Paris was the capital of fashion of the 19th century, but how? How did that? How did that happen? How was it possible? Because it wasn't by itself, you know. And so, when you look at um, cottons that had, um, in maybe in the early nineteenth century, had sort of become part of like the fashionable goods for working class people, so calicos and the bright colors um, that uh, that were able to be printed, that's not French, right? And so, and I'm. The questions I'm asking, and I haven't got the answers just yet. I'll be on sabbatical next year, and I'll be in the archives to find out where this cotton came from, because obviously there's a great, huge source of cheap cotton um, at the time, and uh, and I'm sure that has something to do with it. And so I'm looking mm-hmm. into those kind of questions right now. Okay. We will have you back in a couple of, in a year or two, to... Uh... I'll be here. <laughs> And give the answer. Yes. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but it is exciting when research is at that kind of sta- that mm. that question stage, and kind of every question you ask, there's a dozen more questions that yeah, yeah. That no, I'm the, really looking surface. forward to my time in the archives. Excellent. So, is there anything about luxury that maybe we haven't touched on that you're just like I really want to talk about? I think, um, like one of the other aspects of the book, we haven't had a chance to talk about it very much. Another chapter in in the final part of our book on the future of luxury in Canada, um, we have a um, she's a a scholar and a, and a consultant working in e textiles, Maria mm-hmm. Mahoney, and she provides a, a very interesting chapter. It, it's quite different than the rest. And so it focuses on, this chapter focuses on technology, um, e-technology, or e-textiles, I should say. But she looks at it from the example of smaller European geographies like Switzerland. I think she talks about um, lace making in Ireland at a certain point in the chapter. But what she highlights, and I think this is one of the sort of key, another key message from the book, um, looking forward, is that um, there are many players that have a stake in the game and that have value to bring to uh, the field of luxury making in Canada. And, um, but some of those that we wouldn't necessarily assume. Um, and so she highlights that specialists working in universities, government players, um, as well as creatives, need to collaborate regionally to create luxuries that speak to those regions so that in Ontario, we could build a luxury industry through collaborations with stuff that we're doing, um, with government, uh, with the help of government agencies, and the creatives that are actually imagining the things that, uh, that we want to bring, bring to the world, that represent us mm-hmm. in our specificities. And that really gets at, again, one of the biggest themes of the collection, which is that luxury can be what we make it. We don't have to be bound by these dominant definitions that come out of these historically powerful locations that marginalize the majority of people around the world. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it can be um, less rarefied and more, more accessible. More real. More real. More real. I like that. Yes. Okay. Well, I've got to say, you have certainly challenged my ideas of luxury, and I'm going to be thinking about things a little bit differently when Instagram, you know, throws up those posts at me, because there's, uh, and yeah, it's, as as you pointed out, it's something that is really important um, as we think about just kind of, you know, as a society, where we're going and um, where we are now, and uh so I really appreciate uh, the time that, that, you've, that you've taken to come in and talk about this and all the work. And links, as always, um, in the show notes. I do, though, want to ask Nigel a question um, oh, as sure. the director of the French program. So you're ah, kind yes. of in your final, <laughs> your, your, your final stretch as the, as the director of, of Brock's French program in the Department of Modern Languages. Languages, literatures, and cultures. I abbreviate it so often in my head that mm. I have to stop and actually think about what what the, uh, what the letters L? stand for. What's that other L? Stand for. Yeah, so um, I like to pull back the curtain a little bit on the operations of a university, how things function or get done or are organized. The levers? All the levers <laughs> yeah. I'm pulling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about the uh, about the French program and some of the exciting news, actually. Oh that yeah, you've that's also absolutely had. yes. yes. Um, so I've been director for this is my third year, and I'm ending. I'll be ending after after this uh, after this semester in the role of director of 
French during the pandemic. <laughs> that has got to be an Yeah, with everything that you can imagine that came with that. But like our role, the role of director, like what I see myself doing is just guiding the program forward to create the best experience for our students, right? And so we're always thinking about ways that our students can get at the things that they're curious about. Um, so we're looking at, um, like right now, I just had a discussion with some colleagues about courses in the other language programs in our, in modern languages, we're also uh, Spanish, Italian, and German. And so some of the courses that are there, so we can create maybe interesting concentrations on European cinema, or um, like questions of decolonization throughout these three, these four uh, geographies and these four cultures, um, and the ways that literature um, expresses that. Um, so part of my work is to create these opportunities for students to sort of, you know, find things that they're curious about. Um, and the other part, like, which is sort of maybe a little more hidden, is just, you know, the, the, like the functioning of the department and creating a program that that is appealing to to new students, and so one of the things that uh, I was really lucky to to have fall under my watch was um, a, a, a national scholarship that has um, come out through um, an agency of the federal government, um, the ACUFC, so Association des Collèges et Universités Francophones uh, du Canada, so um, an associ the association of um, Francophone colleges and universities of Canada, and so they are offering three thousand dollars scholarships um, to students in French programs. But each program has to apply for it and demonstrate that we uh, we have sufficient activities, cultural activities, academic activities to support bilingualism. And so, what this program is trying to do is just improve bilingualism. It's a program that offers these three thousand dollars scholarships to Anglophone students, students who've finished. Um, high school in English and are in a French program and doing at least 50% of their studies in the program. So we got 15 scholarships, which was wow. amazing. I was so happy. And so this year we were able to give five scholarships to students in second year, third year, and fourth year. So the years when students in our program are taking 50% of their courses in French. And so I just announced it last Friday, maybe? Either last Friday or last Monday. Today's kind of blend in. Yeah. Um, but, um, but the students have written back, some have written back, and they're so happy and they're so grateful. Um, and it really, like, I feel really good about the labor that went into that work and because, you know, like, school's expensive. Yeah. And we know our students are, like, they're working, they're trying to keep up with four or five courses, six in some cases. Um, so, you know, like, anything helps. And I felt that this was, like, the potential for this is like a lot of help. So I'm very happy. Yeah. And it means so much, I think, to the students as well, because it is, it's, some, it's something tangible. I mean, students love to hear that they're doing well and hear, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of verbal feedback, but to, to actually, you know, say here, yeah. <laughs> here's $3,000. Yes. That's a lot of money when you're a student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's I mean, a lot I of money when all, you're a professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think it's a lot of money regardless of who you are. <laughs> um, that's fantastic, and I should, uh, mention as well though it, our French club our students um, have a French club and they are so they are amazing so active they've uh, um, I've had the privilege of being invited out to to kind of visit with them um, at some of their events and they're so active and doing so much and it's not just students who are French majors there's concurrent education there's mm. 
students um, who are francophone or have francophone connections or just are interested in keeping mm -hmm. up with the language in, in other programs. Um, so if you are listening to this podcast and you are a student or thinking about being a student, um, there's some great opportunities to uh, to create that sense, to, to join in that community. Yes. Come and see me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent. Well, we will put links to your bios um, as well um, in, in the notes. And um, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you for like the patience <laughs> wrangling us <laughs> to the table. It's been worth the wait. It's been worth the wait. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.